All right, welcome to AM Live. I'm Colin. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm really excited about today's episode. I um, hope you're having a good holiday, that it's restful. If you're not having a good holiday, I totally get it. I've been there. I was just thinking about how a couple of New Year's ago, I had nothing. I had nothing cooking, so I just went to sleep before midnight. And uh, I remember telling myself it's just another night. And uh, and it was. And it was. And life moved on. So I hope, uh, however the holidays are for you, that you're... Uh, that you're finding a way to get through it if it's uh, if it's a challenging time. And, you know, thinking about this episode, one thing that always helps me get through difficult times is music. I, uh, I love music a lot. And I've been thinking about recently, you know, with all the changes we're going through in the COVID era, I think about what it must be like to be a musician in these times. Because on top of like the, the crushing impact of streaming, where these giants like Spotify pay artists very little for their music, uh, now you have the fact that the other main source of income, which is touring, has been, you know, canceled for a long period of time and now seriously curtailed. So I'm really excited today to have on uh, some really fantastic musicians uh, joining us to talk about this, what it's like to be an independent musician in the COVID era. I'm especially excited because this is an all British Columbia lineup, all BC Canada lineup. I'm from BC. And all my guests are from uh, BC, so let me introduce them. Uh, Nick Thorburn is with the band Islands. Their latest album came out in 2020. It was one of my favorite albums of the year called Mania. And formerly he was with uh, the band The Unicorns. He hails from Campbell River, British Columbia. Dan Bachner is also here. He is with the band Wolf Parade and also the band Operators. Dan, uh, actually, Dan, I don't know where you're from. You're from, you're from the island. You're from where? And yeah, and reminder to just press the unmute. There's hey, the, there you go. Got it. Hey, hey. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, I'm from Couch and Lake, British Columbia. Okay, okay, nice. Island, baby. Nice, nice, yeah. nice. Okay, and we also have Matt Lyle of Golden Youth. And Matt, where are you from? Uh, Victoria originally. Vancouver's mainly home now, but uh, yeah, island island boy, Roy raised raised there, and I think we all are actually. I think all three of us were from there. Yeah, a, uh, a terrible uh, cursed place. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it produced some incredible musicians. I'll say that. So I, as I as cur- as cursed place often do. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and it's also Boxing Day. So what better way to celebrate Boxing Day than talking to you guys and for our our gringo friends who don't know boxing day is basically the canadian version of black friday probably a bit less aggressive less violence but just as good deals you know some fantastic deals on boxing day and uh so i'm grateful to be spending it with you guys uh nick let me start with you because you just toured to support your your latest record ilo mania i'm just curious you know what for you has changed in the COVID era? What was touring like? How has it become more difficult? And, and any other reflections on on being a musician in these times that you want to share? Oh, gee. Well, first off, hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm good, Happy man. Box- I'm good. Happy Boxing Day. Happy Boxing Hi, Matt. Hi, hi Dan. Um, hey, buddy. Hey. <laughs> um, 
I'm actually in Campbell River right now, funny enough. So I'm I'm in I'm in the uh, in the zone. But uh, yeah, touring. So so our album came out in June of this year, and it was in that brief window where it seemed like things were kind of reverting back to um, kind of a normal touring sort of situation potentially. So we booked a tour for September. Um, and right as we right as we were about to hit the road, the Delta variant was kind of taking off. And so it, it sort of put pumped the brakes on things a little bit. And um, we you know, we made it we made a proof of vaccination requirement to get into the shows to try to make it as sort of safe as possible to uh, you know, mitigate risk, et cetera. But uh yeah, it was different, you know, but it's different for me too. Like I'm from an earlier generation um you know i've been doing this for touring now for 18 years so i've seen a lot of changes um with the the climate of the industry but also just my personal relationship to it you know and how how people kind of engage with with my music so um it's it's definitely become this more concentrated thing when we play we have people that come out that are really, they're not casual listeners. You know, they're very engaged in um, the whole thing that we're doing. So it feels really, it feels really meaningful and um, intense, actually. Hmm. So did it used to be more like you were getting a lot of people at your shows who were just awesome, like not just like hardcore fans, but also people just going out to have like a good time. But now it's more I, like of like a the hardcore fan base. Yeah, it's kind of the runoff. Yeah, all the like, all the like casual sort of interlopers or curious seekers who maybe read a read about us or read a good review and were checking us out, um, have sort of they sort of come and go, you know. But the ones that I guess the ones that were willing to literally risk their lives to see us, um, you know, they're uh, diehards. No pun intended. <laughs> Dan, you toured. I feel like right before COVID hit, right? Because I, Wolf yeah. Parade's like, I think the last show I saw before yeah, COVID we, happened. We saw each other at Brooklyn Steel. That was the last time I was on stage. That was, um, let's see, Febru- late February 2020, right? Like early yeah. March, late February. And um, we had just completed like what was supposed to be the first, the first leg of, of a world tour for uh, an album that we put out on Sub Pop. And my other band operators had just finished doing a Balkan and Ukraine and Russia tour. So I, I was getting a lot of touring in. And then, you know, as we were, as Wolfred was doing this North American tour, it became our, uh, the drummer Arlen and I uh, were, were really kind of focused on the news coming out of China and especially Italy, like just how it was spreading in Italy, how bad it was. And I was, pretty convinced that the European tour that we had booked was going to get canceled. Um, we did the show in Brooklyn and then I just kind of had a light bulb moment where I was like, we, we can't go to Europe. Like we had shows booked all over the continent. Um, I remember Ar- Arlen's partners in health uh, and he was, I, they were talking and, you know, I think one of the big, one of the big issues was like, we didn't know what was happening with COVID, but we didn't want to be, it wasn't just our own safety as we didn't want to be responsible for 
spreading a plague around. So we pulled the plug on that tour and we lost an incredible amount of money and got yelled at uh, by some of the vendors, um, you know, like the, the touring company providing the back line. Um, I remember uh, one of the people from that, uh, that company called us pussies, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and then of course it, it, as, as the weeks went on, it was just like, oh no, no, we made the right decision because we would have literally gotten stuck in Ireland. You know, so, um, and I, I haven't been on stage since that New York show. You would have got stuck in Ireland, but you wouldn't have been a pussy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a trade off. It's a real <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, yeah. I wouldn't, I did anything. Um, and so like to rebook shows now, is it like our, our band sort of pitted against each other to like book venues, just given how much time was lost? Yes. Yeah. There's a huge bottleneck, right? Like, yeah. I mean, around the time that Nick went on tour, I think that a lot of people who were sort of stuck in a queue to, um, to get back on the road were just fighting for space that was shrinking because you have this, this phenomenon of venues going out of business, right? So there are even less places to play. You've yeah. got a huge bottleneck of bands and, uh, you know, I remember our booking agent basically describing it as a bloodbath. Which it was. So. Yeah. So one of the one of the, when you book when you have an agent or if you book your own tours, you get a hold at a venue, which is like a commitment to um, to play at, at said venue. And we were looking in in April of this year. We were looking at touring in in the fall, October, September, and a, a venue like Bowery Ballroom had um, twenty two holds. We would have been the twenty second hold at Bowery Ballroom. So. That means there were 22 bands that had um, put, put in like a, 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 a sort of commitment to play that that day. So that that's something that's sort of I don't think has ever been it has never been that bottlenecked before. And I think it's it's sort of yeah. just gonna I don't know when it's gonna sim, like taper off because next year is when a lot of those people in the fall decided to push a lot of the bigger touring acts. I think decided to p- wait till next year. Um, they're just going to have to turn every venue into like a warp tour style venue where there's 300 <laughs> bands playing like eight minute yeah, sets. Yeah. Uh, so shared, right. shared, that's shared right. back line, no sound check. Just, that's, that's right. Yeah. That's sort of what I, I thought might happen, especially in Los Angeles, would that there would be like five shows a night. And, yeah. you know, in the, in the spring when it seemed like things were, were winding down. Um, I sort of wondered if that was going to be like a like a South by Southwest in perpetuity, which sounds like hell. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it didn't happen. You know, it, it so far remains to be seen. That would. Well, we can but. kind of. I mean, we can. I. We can kind of agree. I think that like this. This was almost happening before COVID. Exactly. COVID just like accelerated yeah. it because. I mean, I'm sure we'll get we'll get to this, but essentially, like as a musician, the only way you're really going to make money is by touring. So, over the last five years, that that economic paradigm has shifted. Everybody's gotten wise to it, and that means even before COVID, there are it's every band in the world is on tour all the time. So, yeah, I think in a weird way, it it kind of ripped the bandaid off, and there's like a there's like a public awareness now that I think was like you you probably had to be a bit of like a real music, you know, 
insider in some way to understand like any of the economics and how you could see like a band on tour and just make these assumptions that oh they must be doing okay and mm-hmm. um I th- I think now just cause any, anybody who is like any awareness of a band on Twitter just to see over like, the last eighteen months how basically it's just been like catastrophic and even for people I mean we're fortunate enough to be like have you know there's a grant system in Canada that even though it's you know in- insanely flawed and in how it's distributed and and a bit of a disaster in a bunch of ways it's like it exists and that just like when I think of my American friends it's just like it's a nightmare like people without. People who had, you know, I have like friends who are like hired guns in in kind of in bands where they're, you know, they're not seeing any money except for touring cash. And they had sort of 18 months of their life, you know, just cannibalized. And now they've had to figure out completely alternative revenue streams because they're, you know, they couldn't go into a studio and be like hired gun there. They're they're not able to like put out their own projects because like getting signed in the last 18 months would probably be a nightmare for a new band, I would imagine. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's just like, I mean, it, it, yeah, like Dan said, it's just been like all these cascading effects, I think have just like accelerated and happened. It's in, in, in the last 18 months and maybe in the long run, it won't necessarily be a bad thing that it all happened that fit, like, quickly, because I think it's, it's forcing, you know, like the music public to, at least acknowledge and understand like the plight of what it means to be not even just an indie musician. I think any musician, I mean, outside of like what, maybe like a hundred touring acts in the world, like everybody's, you know, had a pretty fucked 18 months that has meant like staying in music is going to be pretty difficult. Yeah. I think if you're soundtracking for Netflix, which has like a sort of uh, endless appetite for content and, and creation, um, and, and, and just a huge reserve of cash backing that unless you're, unless you're doing soundtrack music, uh, you, you were, I mean, you're pretty screwed right now. Mm. So, so what has to give, um, I mean like the touring thing will, will sort itself out. I, I don't think that people can stay, you know, locked up forever, but what else has to give? I mean, I'm thinking especially of, of streaming and how that yeah. has, how that just how shitty that pays people. Well, I, think, I mean, you, you, oh, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, well, according, according to one of the, uh, we <laughs> we changed labels last year before we put this record out, and we talked to this one label, and they were like, look, the deal is that like, we hate to be the ones to tell you this, but it's, it's you're going to have to be TikToking every day. And I thought it was a joke. And they oh, were not, they were, they oh, were fully, fully not joking. On. Yeah, no, no. They were like, they were like, this is, this is the, people want to no. see everything behind the scenes. And I was like, I guarantee you, nobody wants to see behind the scenes of my fucking life. <laughs> and, uh, it was also in the same, this was also before I had been made aware of an NFT. And this was in the same Whoa. moment, the guy started talking about NFTs and I was like, maybe this is just, maybe I'm an idiot. And I, I don't know. This was like about a year and a bit ago. So it was like yeah. kind of before everything exploded. And he was like, oh, yeah, this is where we're going to like, we're going to turn back catalogs into gold mines. And I was like, are you like, what planet is this person from? I mean, maybe he's entirely right. I have no they're clue. On, they're just... on planet fear and desperation because like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like these, yeah. Strip, like strip mining the final yeah, assets. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. They are stripping the copper wire out of the house. They're on <laughs> the light bulbs, you know? Yeah, exactly. But, but the TikTok thing is, I mean, that's, it's interesting because that even before COVID that that's been a huge part of being a musician is, 
the sort of offloading of um, traditional things that a record label would traditionally take care of, which is, you know, shit like <laughs> PR, right? So now, yeah. if you yourself uh, are a brand and your band itself is a brand, you are expected to do the job that, say, your record label's PR department would do, but you're expected to do it every day right. and you're expected to do it for free. Yeah. Yeah. It ex that extends that mentality extends to everything in the music industry. We become sort of like Uber drivers where where we we drive a car that we own, we f we fill it with the gas that we pay for. We pick up the customers, but we're only paid a fraction of that service. We yeah. we, we rent everything. It's it, it's a total rent rent economy, right? I mean, Spotify yeah. No one owns. No one listening. The users don't own the music either. They just rent it. We, as as musicians, we we I guess sort of loan it out to this to this behemoth that takes all of the money and pays us a half of a, a penny per stream. And so it's not sustainable at all. And I think if if you went back into the '90s and told a person that they could have every song, more or less every song they could think of at the touch of a button in their pocket, I think they would put that value higher than $13 a month. Yeah. But yeah. I don't, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't put the onus on the, on the, the user either. I would say that the, the system, the monopolization of, of music streaming is, is the true like degradation. Of, and it's, it'll be the death of us all if we don't find a different yeah. way. And there is the part too where I'm just speaking as a listener, as a consumer. Like it does, it's not as fun to have everything available, you know. Like it's there's a certain joy in finding a record and then putting it on, like even going through the act of putting it on. Like that's that. I mean, that's something I can never really get back. You don't. You don't like the algo. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with the algo? Yeah, right. you don't want you you don't want your radar mix showing up and just telling <laughs> telling you what your favorite songs are. Well. I mean, let's let's talk about the algo because uh, so this year I believe it was the first year that Spotify uh, put put numbers on the board, like in terms of profit, and um, and and this wasn't widely publicized immediately, but what they did, uh, how they changed their business model after having a year of success, was very interesting. They so they instituted something called discovery mode. So as an artist, you know, you have your Spotify artist account and what discovery mode gets you is you get to forfeit your royalties uh, based yes. on the amount of times that Spotify boosts you onto their playlist. Now, oh, payola. Of that, payola, baby. Yeah, it's fucking payola. And the flip, yeah. is crazy. <laughs> fucking flip side of that is that is that, OK, let's say you don't want to do that. Let's say you're like, this is bullshit. I don't need to do that. Uh, then you won't get playlisted at all. But they also instituted another feature on the back end of that, which is now when anyone clicks, like, so if you have followers, right? Like, you can follow artists on Spotify. Obviously, everybody does that, right? So if you put an album out and you click on that and you and they listen to it, they are automatically debiting you uh, essentially with 123 plays worth of your royalties. Whoa, the finder's this fee. Is, this is this is the new thing for Spotify. And then, you know, on top of that. all that, it's like, okay, they're making money. What are they doing with this money? Well, they're uh, investing it in uh, uh, weapons manufacturers. <laughs> so, like, so really? like Daniel Ek, yeah, so Daniel Ek, uh, couple, about a month ago, 
announced, quietly announced that he was investing $100 million in something called Helsing, which is a British-German defense contractor focused on artificial intelligence. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm just going to read the uh, mission statement for their CEO, Gunbert Scherf. We all know, like, when Germans and Americans get together to make weapons, good things happen. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, we go to the moon. That's what happens, right? Fucking straight to the moon, baby. Straight to the so, moon. So this is, this is Goon, Goonberg on where the Spotify profits have gone. We have designed the algorithm around principles important in NATO and Europe, around respect for human rights and civil yes. liberties and privacy. Those are, yes, NATO no and human rights. Yes. And... Lastly, joining them recently last week was ex Palantir C- uh, CTO Robert Fink. So, not good, man. Like, oh my god, I don't oh. know. Oh. Arlen, Tom- uh, Arlen Thompson bleak. is here too. Um, Arlen Thompson, also of Wolf Parade, hey. also of Vancouver Island. Yeah, hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, man. Yeah, how's sweet, it going, buddy? Good. Nice Hi, lots of snow. Hey, how's it going, Nick? Hey Matt. Hey Arlen. Uh, yeah. The meat meat space, I guess. The, the, digi- the meat space. Digital, digital meat space. <laughs> I, love the meat. I love the meat space. Yeah. I th- what I love about Spotify too is that you know they're really coming out now that they're kind of like they just see themselves as a tech company, not as a music yes. company. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you know you're having this realization that you know all the music that I've been part of making isn't really you know, for Spotify, for, for the love of music, it's basically just to create like a market value for them to raise more, you know, more capital for them to do things like now, like support defense contractors and get into AI. And it's just a very weird place to be where, you know, like the, the old model of, of the record industry was bad, you know, yes. uh, but this new model is, is it's, it's so much more bizarre because really you're, you're, you know, your your job, like even that Daniel Lex said, was you know to put out two or three albums a year, and that really you know they're putting no support into the artists. They're just all they want you to do is create more content to build up their their bottom line to create more sh- value for the shareholders of the company, uh, and they would be doing it with anything. It would, wouldn't matter if it was they just happened to do music, but yeah, exactly. Like you could take exactly what their business model is and literally apply it to like any pre-existing content stream and anything and, and just be like, oh, well, we'll just map this out over top of this. Be- they got yeah. him. Yeah. They killed him. Yeah. They killed him. They killed Matt. <laughs> oh, sorry, guys. They took uh, me out. It was, it was too dangerous what I was saying in that last uh, 0.5 seconds. Hel- Helsing deployed some Bayraktar drones on loan from Turkey. And uh, <laughs> Matt, Matt has been tactically eliminated. The uh, D- D- Daniel X investment is paying off right away. That's right. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I know, think one thing uh, with touring too uh, is that how many venues have gone out of business uh, since since COVID started? Um, I just know on the island here, I think we've lost you know three or four venues. Like Victoria has, you know, maybe one venue for live music that's still in operation um so it's it's pretty bleak if you're you know if you're not a, a stadium sized band like the the top you know one percent of bands or 0.1 percent of bands are kind of fine but yeah mm-hmm. you know kind of anything in that middle range um you know things have just gotten i think a lot 
a lot more difficult, more difficult. Totally. Than and it was already difficult before COVID. Yeah, it's exactly, yeah. as Dan said, it, it was exacerbated by, sped up by COVID for sure. All this, all this stuff we're talking about, you know, like the, like Matt, you talking about uh, musicians becoming gig economy workers and Arlen and Nick, you know, talking about closing venues. This is a, this is just a mirror. Like our job is just mirroring the effects of, that COVID has had on the economy, which has benefited a very small amount of people and immiserated a very large section. And it's just kind of accelerated something that was happening prior to COVID. I'm thinking too, you know, Arlen, you're talking about consolidating venues. Mark Geiger, who uh, is one of the founders of Lollapalooza, uh, got in the ring last year with this project called Save Live, which is a partnership between him and a guy named Jason Modis, who is the son of a very wealthy uh, investment banker. And Save Live essentially was pitched as uh, Geiger and Modis would go in and buy up distressed properties. So venues that were... (laughs) Right, uh, you, this, you know where this is a great going, start. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's a winning so model. Go, yeah, they're, they're saving it. They're buying these distressed, is... these poor independent venues. And the catch is, at the end of the day, Save Live owns fifty-one percent of that venue after they save it. So uh, then they go to on to partner with AEG or whatever big conglomerate touring company, and mm-hmm. they just pump their bands through those venues, and you get what you see in the rest of culture, which is just a massive monopolization and flattening, you know? <laughs> like, Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you're like with all the venues, especially it's just been, uh, they were already on life support. Like if you were an indie venue, you were basically just like counting the days until you were like eaten alive by live nation or house of blues, or even there's like kind of some smaller, like regional companies that are just mimicking the same model. And it's just, I mean, it's crazy. You end up with the situation where you have, like, even in Vancouver, uh, whatever venues didn't close that were independent were swallowed up by Live Nation. And it's just like this regression to the mean where they're only going to book certain types of bands. You're not going to see, like, you're just, you're like, it, it, it's just going to take everything and, and, and kind of shave the edges off. And they, they, the way they operate the venues is completely fucked in terms of, like as an artist you go in there and they take a cut of your merch which is just like literally when you're on tour that is like your lifeblood to stay alive um and like they eat into that margin into a way that basically you you're not even making money on anyone i mean i remember with our last label we were on like this 360 deal because we were young and dumb when we signed it and we were giving away what does that mean matt it means they're taking like a portion of like every element of, of your revenue. So outside of just like your record deal, they're making money on like the publishing, on the merchandise, on the touring. Cool. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, super predatory. So they're and, feasting and on your entire corpse. Instead of exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because they're yeah, they're like we haven't we haven't maximized this. Uh, it's such a sinister line. name too. The totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got it out. Exactly. Yes. Like you thought you thought they, you think they would come up with like a friendly name, like the all encompassing deal. <laughs> Why the big like, yeah. the big hug deal. The big, the big exactly. <laughs> yeah. So but anyways, when you're like at a venue and I remember doing the math once when we were on tour and we were playing there was like this run of tour dates we were doing where the venues were like all part of this uh like they're I think it was they were all like House of Blues ones and they were taking like I don't know, like fifteen or twenty percent of the merch, which is pretty close to what the margin is on a lot of merch anyways like maybe but maybe like outside of t-shirts and stuff 
And then our label was also taking, I think, 15%. And we were like, we're fucking paying people to buy t-shirts right now. Like, it's just Labels, completely, yeah. completely insane. Now, now they're trying to go after um, this, this rights organization started up in the last decade or so called Sound Exchange that pays performers. So not just writers, but just people who play on the records, pays them yeah. a royalty through digital streaming. It's an amazing uh, service. And labels now are tr- trying to get in a, a piece of that action too and it's like what seriously what part of my corpse do you not want to fucking piss all over well i was think uh, i was thinking about that with like i've seen people uh i mean i know um dan like spencer does this in your band like he's got a patreon and i think like mimicking the like i i, I totally see sort of like the direct consumer model as like uh, you know whatever all like they've sort of imposed all these kind of bullshit startup-y things on bands. But it is the one thing where I'm like, hey, that makes a lot of sense. If you have like this like dedicated, even if it's a small but like dedicated fan base and you can find a way to yeah. communicate and 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 like it feels like relative I mean it's just well, the same as same as podcasts I mean, in a lot of ways. But I, yeah, I can see I labels labels are gonna encroach on that like right away. They're not gonna let that be like a separate thing. I can I can speak on that a bit because um you know after after Basically, Aaron, after I saw you after the after the New York show, it became pretty clear that uh, the money tap was going to get turned off for me specifically. Because like, mm. uh, music is my main job. I have Wolf Parade and I have operators, and I have a little bit of uh, royalties coming in from the, from a few of my other bands. Uh, so ninety percent of my income, you know, I, I was panicking, and uh, my partner Devika and and I started a patreon and it took a while to get it going but once it did get going in the middle of 2020 basically we were back to covering our rent and being able to buy groceries and you know it was terrifying but it was it's also patreon is a lot of work it's uh Mm -hmm, right and it's not like being in a band it's a completely different thing it's more like uh it's more like direct service to fans which can be which is really rewarding but also just really required me to like learn a lot of skills that i didn't have like street i had to learn how to use obs uh i had to get better at producing stuff at home i had to buy a bunch of equipment to record passable material at home you know uh so there was a big investment in it and Mm -hmm. and the idea of a label taking a chunk of that is uh fills me with uh rage <laughs> i mean i i can only imagine that like with with a young band that'll just be like deep in the paperwork somewhere 100 percent. you know where and, and like it'll just say yeah there's there's no the, like and a, any pop any potential sort of avenue between you and fans they're going to be like no nah, we own a piece of that for sure yeah and the only reason patreon even worked for for me and dev was because we have an existing fan base like yeah me with exactly eight, like nick like 18 plus years of being in this business and a bunch of bands and and you know like like that allowed us to live and i can't imagine being a younger band trying to put a record out between let's say january of 2020 and now it's just brutal I have a question. Has there, I know there's been some actions, like some protests at Spotify offices. Uh, and there was, you know, there was, a, but there was a union formed. Has uh, that gotten anywhere? It's not really a union, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I mean, I, I, bad news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went to one. I went to the LA protest. It was pretty grim. It was pretty grim. There was like ten people there, and there, there was it just did not feel 
yeah. organized or, or it just felt like it also felt like people were griping about. Yeah. Bring I don't their, know. It, it, yeah. It bring bring like, their own personal gripe into whatever yes, that is. Yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. It felt more about like yes. the, their lack of streams or something. They're like, yes. they're like, I, I yes. specifically hate this A&R guy from this label. <laughs> yeah, they fucked yeah. me they, over. They, uh, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, well, I'm sure, I'm sure you're right. But, uh, this is a single, single issue voter here. Yeah. Well, this is a big question, right? Like I, I got, I got involved with one of these, uh, Spotify, like organizing groups, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic um slightly before the pandemic actually and my first like sort of i i respect what they're doing i want to say that but my first red flag that this maybe wasn't going to work was that there was kind of a failure to understand that musicians are essentially competing against each other right like it's very hard to unionize a group of freelancers who are all theoretically in competition with each other yeah, yeah. like that's a yeah. big that's yeah. a big mountain to climb. Yeah. And I think it can be done. It just requires like rigorous sort of material analysis and, and organization <laughs> and not like petty sort of score settling. So, well, that's, that's uh, r- r- rigorous analysis. This is definitely something musicians are uh, known for. That's our, that's our strong suit. <laughs> no, but also any creative is just, it, that comes with, you're going to have an ego. So you're going to be petty. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's the same thing with media too. Like the idea of people being in, solidarity with each other i mean i don't know i think it's 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 especially it's especially tough in music uh like i have a lot of friends who work in film and seeing sort of you know what their unions are able to do for them is um pretty remarkable um i mean all the way down to i mean literally like the lowest paid guy on like the worst tv show on netflix is making 10 times more money than i'll ever make in music because he has like this union but i think the biggest difference is is that there's like the physical proximity of like going in day to day and like the effects of that it's 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 really real and tangible in a way that like musicians unions i think like we're all part of them but they feel pretty abstract and like dan was saying you're you're we're all involved in this sort of race to the bottom where you're like undercutting everybody all the time even whether you're aware of it or not just by like saying yes to lower guarantees or you know, like, like these guys are saying about like getting on playlists where you're, you're, you know, cannibalizing your own, like, like minute bit of streaming revenue or you're already getting. And I mean, the whole system is set up in a way to like pit creators against each other so that the only people left standing are the people like, you know, siphoning all the revenue off the top. And obviously something's got to like fundamentally change to, to deal with that. Um, but yeah, it's tough to solidarity. The idea of solidarity is feels really tough when it's like, I mean, as, uh, musicians are constantly on on tour and separated from each other. And even though we all maybe, you know, are aware of each other's existence and and aware of each other's lives, it's it's not like we're going in and punching the clock day to day together. Yeah, yeah, agree. I mean, I think there are some some ways out of. I, this is all really bleak, right? It's true, but it's 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 depressing to think about. But I think there are ways out. Like there there is an exit strategy. It's just I think a lot about um, the sort of idea that independent labels that put out thematically similar music could could if because the labels themselves are also getting hammered by Spotify. They're seeing massive yeah. drops in yeah the profits. Indie so, yeah, so the indie labels could potentially band together and form a kind of distribution network like they did in the nineties, but uh, it would be more of you know a, a Spotify that contained say four AD sub pop. Drag city, anti, you know that kind of thing. Um, 
cross genre too. That's that's one thought. The other the other thing is cult. And then like, they would keep their music out of Spotify, so you couldn't get those labels. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. And just negotiate yeah. for a higher royalty rate. So if you wanted to listen to that type of music, if you're a fan of that type of music, but you still want the convenience of being able to stream, which we all love, you know, then uh, then you pay for that service. Maybe you pay a little bit more. Maybe the labels make a little less than Spotify. I mean, there's that, and then there's also like. The idea of culture, like culture bunkers, like having the state get involved, which I don't see happening in America, but definitely in Canada, for, uh, like adopting more European model where you have state run venues that provide jobs to skilled professionals and train young people and they can have bands that sell tickets and then they can have noise shows. But because they have yearly operating budgets, uh, it's every show is not, you know, sort of profit motivated. It's a, it's a more holistic approach. So that would be nice. That would. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, what it's legislative. So, you know, I think like digital, uh, kind of, uh, uh streaming royalties need to be kind of standardized, uh, at a government level. Cause as far as I know right now, they aren't. Um, and I know like radio is, and has been for, like, I don't know, 70 years. Um, but digital has kind of been left out in the open because it's, it's you know, the, the whole uh, technological uh, kind of PR is that it's disruptive and that if you, you put any uh, constraints on these companies that you're going to somehow ruin them. And so it's let companies like Spotify, who, you know, got their start basically just, you know, stealing music and not paying the artists, essentially, um, you know, of letting them get away with this. So I think a lot of ways it's, it's getting the government to step in and, you know, kind of protect, uh, protect musicians, uh, by getting, you know, these, these tech companies and platforms to, to pay a, a fair rate, uh, and to figure it out. And if some of them go under, then they go under, like, you know, yeah. I just think it, too much has been too much of a, you know, has, has been left up in the air, uh, because it's, it's seen as, you know, wanting to encourage, you know, the world of tech, but it's like, it's just very weird that, you know, the Daniel Eck who started Spotify is worth, you know, three times as much as Paul McCartney. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. And they're making, yeah. they're, they're making, you know, so much money that they can invest a hundred million dollars in a defense company. Well that, you know, or pay $250 million to Joe Rogan for his fucking podcast. But it's like, well, that's all money that should be going to the artists. Like, you know, but I think you, like, you hit, you hit the nail on the head though, where, it's like if the business model in all like it's like how all the like the entire startup mentality of like hey if if we just do insane levels of exploitation on this like really narrow vertical and completely change the rules but we grow at a rate that is so like undeniable that people are like wow this must be a good thing because look how successful it is like look how many users they have and they're like yeah well the there's there's like a direct correlation there like there's like a direct correlation between how many users they have and how fucking insane the business model is because it doesn't actually make any sense but then you just have to like get to the place where you're like oh well like you know spotify is too big like they're literally in that too big to fail category now where they're like oh well we can just like rewrite legislation now and figure out what it means like and that's is you know like the, the the people who obviously pay the price for that are are going to be the content creators. I mean, at least I imagine Netflix when they like uh, stream a movie or a TV show that has to be negotiated, right? And they pay something, and I 
I suspect they make it worth people's while here. It's like they just take it. Oh, they just, I've, yeah, I've, it's, I've it, heard, it's just a com- oh, completely level. They pay like fuck all to 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 for for content for movies and stuff. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, like like you know, if you especially if you're smaller, like you know, like seven thousand dollars for the rights, you know, which is nothing. Yeah. You know, because yeah, because you just want to be on there, I guess. Yeah, well, they're just monopolies, right? Yeah. So you know, they're on this monopoly, so it's it's this kind of you either make a deal with monopoly or you're kind of left out in the cold. Um, And I think that's really what we're all looking at is that these tech companies are just are simply you know they're unregulated for the most part and they're they're too powerful um, in these cultural spaces and say like for your next album uh with wolf parade arlen if you guys wanted to not put it on spotify would you even have that choice no not at all i don't think we would no yeah. no no because no, no. all, all the labels have made deals with spotify and a lot of them have made those deals from what i understand with stock options exactly yeah so they yes. cut they cut artists out entirely from a revenue stream that they're like entitled yeah. to so so in a lot of the ways the labels uh and certain artists, uh, like kind of the top tier artists, have a vested interest in keeping wow. these rates low. I didn't know and that. So the so the labels get stock in Spotify if they they trade in stock for for they rights. trade in stock. Yeah. So then and they have a stake in. It's even worse than that too, because essentially, like prior, I think prior to this year, the main way Spotify was generating revenue was through these sort of complex co ownership. Uh, co-ownerships of stocks. So, for instance, Spotify, let's say Spotify owns a percentage of Warner. Warner, in turn, owns a percentage of Spotify, which in turn is owned by, you know, Tencent. But Warner owns a percentage of Tencent. But Tencent also owns a percentage of, like, whatever, you know, what a pick another record label. And all of these networks, they can create complex financial instruments that essentially generate money just by reason of their relation with each other. Like that, <laughs> when I when I found out about that, I was like, yeah, I, I just really wanted to pull everything off of that platform. <laughs> like, like when you really look at Spotify's, you know, their their valuation or whatever, which is like, I looked at it one day. I think their valuation, which is like sixty billion or, or something, is more than the entire music industry combined. So their valuation, and I mean, they're trying to, you know, what's their product? Well, they're selling some ads and they're selling. $13 a month subscriptions. Well, it, it's all, none of it makes any fucking sense. It's, yeah. It's a totally it's, detached from financial yeah. reality. So, yes. so this whole thing is like, it's, it is just a, it's, it comes down to this, like, you know, this finance world where, you know, nothing really makes any sense. And it certainly isn't, you know, something that's positive really for the artists. Um, yeah. There's, and there's no incentive because the majors all have these sort of back end. um, ownership deals where they own shares in Spotify, it actually like they, it makes more sense for them to like keep the, the stream rates really low and, and, and like, or like the price per stream, because they're just like, well, why would like, why would we siphon money from a company we own a part of to pay rev- artists when we can instead take like a dividend check every quarter where we just make it, that all that money back instead. And so they also have a giant, catalog it's an extension of the, the exactly yeah the back catalog they would, yeah they would sign 10 things throw them all against the wall and one will stick mm-hmm. and that'll make yep. up the loss for the others i mean a label has 30 releases in a year they're making 30 times what the the artist 
the individual act that puts out that record. So for them, it's more of a bigger, I don't know if this is maybe going too far afield, but I don't know if you guys saw the, that story about that New Yorker writer, Ian Urbina, who, who Oh just, my God. Incredible. Who, who took, <laughs> it was like 500 oh, yeah. different people. He got, yeah. He wrote. I had, a, I, had a, I had a few, but I was I was minorly insulted. I didn't get that email. I had a few friends get. I got it, that email. You that did okay. Email. Yeah. yeah, I was. I, was, like I did. Twenty three hundred songs. It's it's wild. Yeah, yeah he's he's the, he's the Wait, most, this was some scam, right? Like, yeah, he's the most crypt, pro- yeah. prolific songwriter of the year. Yeah. <laughs> and he, if you listen to, if you go to his um, Spotify page, he's got hundreds of albums released this year, and they're all with these small artists, and he has almost nothing to do with it but he's getting a piece of the writing and a piece of the publishing or the the master side because of i think his wife owns the company that that did the deal or yeah that was the craziest part about it is like he didn't even like even though the whole thing seemed super sketched the way he was approaching all these artists he was saying there was this third party label who was the one sort of orchestrating everything and dumping money into the pr and then somebody did like the LLC like search and was like, oh, wait, no, that's just your wife, man. Like, this is it's just his, you. Like, it's like, like registered to his fucking address. Dude. Yeah. Just, yeah. Like, like, it wasn't it's amazing. Yeah. And he, mean, highlighted, I, he highlighted that flaw. You know, he gamed the, the system and showed just how like rickety the whole situation is yeah i think you're right yeah he really like he shone a light on exactly how like probably a lot of actual labels are actually run so i just want to i want to explain this for people dan i I just uh, want to explain this for for people who aren't familiar with the story so this guy was basically he was approaching journalists uh asking them to help promote a book or something like that and then but in the process he was what he was he he was taking a cut of their royalties he was a journalist approaching musicians yeah yeah, okay. to turn the this this long piece he made. Well, go ahead, Matt. I, I don't want to. Oh no, I I I you you probably have a better handle on it. Me, go ahead. Oh, just I mean I I don't know it too in depth, but he was approaching different musicians. I guess a friend friends of yours and Dan. He asked you to to be a part of it. Yeah, I got an email from his uh, organization. Yeah. The Outlaw <laughs> Music Project or something like that, and he's yeah. and he's yes, right. and he and he's. I mean, it says it. It was right there in the name. You should have known, really. The Outlaw. It's. Uh... But what's the scam itself? So he's listing himself as a he, like this makes him a collaborator he, with the. Musician. He was saying he, gets, he, gets he was a like cut of the royalty. Yeah, he had this project. It's like a uh, like a it's like an uh, this big oceanography kind of um, like expose thing where there's going to be documentaries, and he wanted to make all these all this music sort of in the ecosphere around it where he wanted to bring in all these artists where he would provide samples that he's recorded from being on the water over the last 10 years, like ocean noises of some kind. And then they would write music and in some way incorporate a little bit of it. But it sound when each artist was approached, it was made to sound like it was this like hyper specific, like, Hey, I'm coming at you and you alone because I love what you do. And instead, it was this like massive blanket where he threw out like thousands and thousands of emails, got mm-hmm. people to sign these contracts, where he then was like a co-author on every single song. So he owned fifty percent of the rights, and then all of the all of the rights management on on both the pub and master side <laughs> was owned by so good. yeah, owned by a label. Making so much fucking money too. Like, yeah, yeah, like. But it's the funniest. It's so funny because he puts so much work into this hilarious thing where you're like, dude, if you'd applied this to like 
like re- you looked at Spotify and you're literally like, you know how you know how I can make so many fractions of fractions of a penny is by going after independent quantity. artists on yeah. Spotify. It's very yeah, yeah, quantity, yeah it's a, baby. It's a very oh strange God. yeah the whole thing. This isn't just some guy either. He's like yeah, he's, he's a like big a, dude. Yeah, he's a big time journalist so that, he won the I think, I think he even won a pulitzer i think yeah he won a yeah, fucking pulitzer prize so he should try and win another pulitzer by basically <laughs> this is some advice if you're listening uh claim <laughs> that you were exposing the flaws of the algorithm based uh streaming services uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all a big joke dip. you're gonna give all the money back <laughs> yeah is that is artist, so Aaron, is is that allowed in the journalist world? You can just like commit you commit bank fraud, and then you're like, hey, this is actually what what we're what we're doing is we're uh, revealing the intricate flaws within the system. Oh my god! Yeah, my fucking I mean, my, my vice piece yeah. on cocaine smuggling back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe they didn't go with that angle for that vice thing. They were like, yeah, we were just trying to get really deep into the world of of Australian cocaine. Trafficking. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. And Dan, yeah. you turned down this opportunity. Yeah, well, actually, you know, I I think I saw it go, come into my email and just immediately sent it to junk because uh, <laughs> if you, yeah, if you're a musician, you get, you just get constant emails for uh, bullshit scams like this. And then when I saw the, the, the thing come up, I was like, searched back through my email and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't respond to that. So are you, you guys, you're you're bummed you can't take part in the class action lawsuit coming up, though. You won't get yeah. your frac- fractions of a dollar back. Jesus. One of the things he was doing that someone brought up was, like, like part of his uh, musical contributions was, like, what he described as, like, eth- ethnographic field recordings of, like, Thai fishermen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they're like, yeah. they should, they should have, uh, they should have rights to that, right? Yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Which adds a whole other level of just pure liberal dumb shit to this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If those, if if those fishermen actually exist, he probably negotiated himself a cut of their of their uh, of their. <laughs> heart, of their <laughs> yeah, he gets, he gets, yeah, he gets fifty percent of their cod every year. Uh, oh my god, dude. Ugh. All right, so I think we can we can start to wrap. Uh, this has been great. So I'd just love to hear from you guys what you have on deck in uh, in 2022, and um, any final thoughts you have on on you know where you know how to survive as an indie musician in this um, in this era. And, and Matt, let's start with you. Um, we just put out an album and uh, called Dream Baby, and we're was we're hoping to tour a bunch and had some dates lined up, but those have all been postponed. We just played a couple shows a few weeks ago, which was really fun. Hadn't done that in, in a few years, obviously. Um, in Vancouver, but we will. Uh, yeah, we played a couple shows in Vancouver and and a show in Victoria, and so which was really fun. So I got to see a lot nice of friends, fun. and and then literally the next day, everybody was like, "Oh, never mind." We're, we're shutting back down again, but, uh, yeah, we'll be back at it. Uh, I think probably late spring next summer and, uh, can't wait to do it. Uh, yeah, I'm making a 4,000 song album, uh, lo- <laughs> lo-fi beats to study in <laughs> and I'm going to mince it on the blockchain and fucking retire from this bullshit. Hell yeah, dude. Well, I've, I've already, I've already made an NFT of this podcast, so you guys are fucked. Nice. Sorry. Oh, yeah. shit. Yeah. Uh, not just uh, making another, working on another record. 
uh, nice. finishing up another record. Playing a festival in L.A. with Arlen and Dan here in May. That's right. Nice. Hope to, hope sweet. To those, hope to see those see those sweet boys in person. It's gonna be great. I'm really looking forward to those shows. Like that'll probably be the first time I'm back on stage, and it's gonna be good. It's gonna be real nice. It'll be like the second time I've left the island. So. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Uh, I have a solo record that, uh, I'm recording right now. Um, and then I, uh, yeah. Like not, not, not an operator's record, like a fully solo Dan record. Yep. Oh, wow. That's what I've been working on over the, over the pandemic. And yeah. And then the Wolf Parade shows and, uh, I have, and my other uh, side hustle is I have a Canadian politics podcast called Bottleman, um, where we just make fun of. Mostly Canadian journalists, so yeah, it's, it's good, good time. I I'm so I'm so cut off from Canadian journalism. It's awful. It's, it's weird. It, well, but the thing is, I want to be involved. You know, I want to be a part of it because I just feel like there's so much we could do. You know. Yeah. But um, it's such a funny scene, and it's it rewards such mediocrity. It's crazy. Um, we we could talk Absolutely. more about that, Dan. Um after we wrap this segment, but, uh, and sorry, Dan, uh, what's the name of your podcast? It's called the bottleman. The bottleman. Okay. Nice. Nice. And so Arlen, you'll be touring with Walt, with Dan and Wolf Parade. Yeah. We got a, we got a show in LA at the Troubadour. uh, And then we're playing the just like home festival. I think the day after. And then we got a show in San Francisco. I can't remember the venue now. Lankin. Dan, do you remember the venue is? Anyways, no, I don't. <laughs> so bad. Uh, oh, yeah. so we keep it a pretty, pretty quiet, just because it's it is so, <laughs> you know, things are so up in the air. It really is hard to think that you're gonna book some shows and then six months actually get to play them, which is a weird feeling. Yeah. Um, and I got and Matt. I you got a. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Oh, and I got another project uh, called Anunnaki. Uh, if you're into kind of doom ambient uh psychedelic uh instrumental music uh you can nice. find us on Bandcamp. uh got a had a record that just came out we repressed it uh you will not find it on spotify which is great uh um, wow okay yeah uh not that they'd want us um <laughs> Dude, but, they uh, want the whole corpse you kidding <laughs> they want everything yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well we're on Bandcamp, and Bandcamp, i have to say is one of the few kind of half decent uh you know online music uh, yeah. distribution uh, that's going right now. So yeah, support Bandcamp. They seem to be pretty decent. Yeah. I get you paid. Co- co-sign that message. Go to Bandcamp. They're, they're the best of the worst. Yep. And uh, Matt, Dream Baby just came out, right? Your it did. Yeah, yeah. It came out in November. And will you guys get the chance to, to tour to support it or not? Yeah, that that's the plan. We kind of had we pushed it back a couple times and then lined up stuff for the spring and that's all been pushed now, but I'm assuming, yeah, I think we'll do a bunch of stuff next summer. I'm, we're already working on another record cuz why not? I'm uh, at home doing nothing else, so do that. But uh yeah, I'm really really hoping we get to get back out and do a bunch of shows next summer. All right, well look, I'm so thankful to you guys for joining me on Boxing Day. This was this was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. Um Nick Thorburn Islands, formerly of the Unicorns, latest album. One of my favorites of 2020 is Ilomania. Dan Bachner of Wolf Parade and Operators. Arlen Thompson of Wolf Parade as well. 
and Matt Lyle of Golden Youth. His latest album is Dream Baby. And guys, thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, me. thanks, Aaron. So, Dan, thanks, uh, let's, if you want to stick around, let's yeah. talk Ukraine because that's a big yeah. um, interest of yours. Let's I, do it. Uh, oh, can I hang out on this too? Yeah, Please. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, got some, got some thoughts. So it looks like basically, I don't know, from my vantage point, we had, we had all these threats of like, you know, U.S. intelligence was claiming that Russia was about to invade Ukraine. Then they yeah. said, we're not exactly sure, but we think he is. But then people started doing the, like looking at the numbers and they realized that actually, while there has been an increased mobilization in Russia of troops, it wasn't enough to actually invade Ukraine. Yes. And that makes sense because like, why would Russia want to invade Ukraine? That's like, it just sounds crazy. So, and now it actually looks like there's, despite the best efforts of war hawks in Washington, and maybe we'll pull up some of the things that have been said recently by like um, Ann Applebaum and Seth yeah, Moulton yeah. and the Wall Street Journal. It, it looks like actually there's, you know, talks between the U.S. and Russia are going to continue and that actually this, I mean, this might even lead to something productive. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think, I, I mean, just to, I want to give some background on this because uh, I, I did a, Riley, my co-host on Bottleman and I did an episode on this like three weeks ago uh, when it started to heat up. But I, I think a good place to start is the fact that like it seems like if you zoom out, it seems like Russia and the United States both want the same thing, which is for Ukraine and Russia to go back to the table with the Minsk agreements and hammer out some kind of uh, some some kind of deal surrounding Lukansk and, and Donbass. Right. Um, this seems and like just to, and just to, both... just to explain to people like what all these things are. So Minsk was basically this accord signed between Ukraine and the Russian-backed uh, forces in east in eastern Ukraine, and where they are, like the, the area that the Russian-backed uh, forces control is, uh, is 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 the Donbas, including these. Areas. Yeah. So um, and and it seems like the only the only party that does not want to go back to the table there is Ukraine because the Minsk agreements would necessitate um, elections. Uh, they would also necessitate the um, sort of solidification of police force, uh, like local police forces in Donbass and and Lukansk, and most importantly, it would necessitate amnesty for combatants on both sides, which is. Uh, Ukraine is just not going to go for that. So, so it's yeah. Um, but I could talk a little bit about the the background of the lead up to this, if you want. Um, yeah, well, sure. Pretty, I mean, yeah, you gave pretty, us a preview before talking about the use of Turkish drones against the yeah. Russian-backed forces, which is um, is a pretty significant development. And it's it's just like it's like everyone's flirting with world war, and there doesn't seem to be yet this like a concern about that, at least, at least in, you know, just like from what I noticed in Washington. Yeah. It's kind of scary brinksmanship. And, you know, like the, the first sort of inkling of this that came out of America was this, uh, you know, very, very scary article by a guy named Vladimir Isachenkov, who like, if you're not paying attention and you're just reading this article about it's his article came out in, I believe, uh, the wall street journal. And he was, he was essentially talking about how, Russian invasion was imminent. Who is Esachenkov? Well, he works for the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. So, you know, um, 
funded by Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, General Dynamics, General Atomics, like Brzezinski was part of it. Kissinger was a member. This is not like, you know, this is uh, this is the state, essentially. And a lot um, of Biden, a lot of Biden people come from there, too. Yeah. Yeah. So his article comes out and this this kind of funny thing happens where the Ukrainian uh, like the center of Ukrainian politics, they they read this and feel like it is uh, Russian disinformation. Right. Like that was their first response. Zelensky's cabinet was like, oh, this is just bullshit. But then in the weeks following, there was the matter of a seven hundred and twenty million dollar IMF loan that needed to get approved. And, you know, according to some journalists in Ukraine, it became kind of clear that the terms of that loan sort of were predicated on the government getting behind this narrative, which they quickly did. But none of them could decide on when the invasion was going to happen. Like uh, the Secretary of Defense in Ukraine said uh, it was going to happen on Christmas. Somebody else said it was going to happen on Orthodox Christmas. You know, so it's just... And then underpinning all of this is like, Aaron, what you were saying, like leading up to this, this uh, leading up to this piece, you've got the Ukrainian military using Javelin missiles in Donbass, using these Javelin missile platforms, which were uh, given to them, given to Ukraine during the Trump administration. Just kind of funny considering everybody, uh, you know, like the democratic side was like Trump is in the pocket of Putin or whatever. But no, he's selling them Javelin missile platforms. And they were also using Turkish Bayraktar drones. So these weapons are both provided by NATO countries to Ukraine being used against uh, Russian speakers in these breakaway republics, which is a pretty fucking big deal. And and the other the other thing was there was a there was a pretty high profile kidnapping of a military commander in uh, Donbass, I believe, who's just disappeared. That was like uh, another sort of chaos element leading up to this. So it makes sense that Russia would move equipment to the border. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so my question is, like, the thing I don't figure out is what is the play? Like, what? okay, so if Russia is actually not going to invade, Russia is at least I, – I think Russia doesn't mind the perception that they might invade because they are seeking some guarantees. They're seeking a commitment from the U.S. and their allies to stop expanding NATO, which was a complete violation yeah. of, the, of the deal that ended the Cold War, basically. And they're also l- looking to not have, you know, NATO weapons positioned in countries like Ukraine. So that's the Russian angle. But in terms of those who are like hyping up the threat of a Russian invasion and and, and still trying to actually even provoke one, <laughs> I think you, you could argue, what is their angle? Are they trying to like the angle of, say, Washington or of the Ukrainian government? Are they trying to renegotiate the terms of Minsk? to get something more favorable for them? Are they trying to get something in the way of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which is basically, that's a really big deal for Russia and also for Ukraine, because basically Ukraine, ironically, has been making a lot of money off of Russia. So even though they've been kind of at war, uh, Ukraine is collecting billions of dollars in transit fees via like gas pipeline that goes from Russia to the rest of Europe. Whereas Nord Stream 2 wants it's operational will bypass that. Right. So I'm wondering, like, is our people in Ukraine and Washington trying to get Russia to, um, I don't know, make some kind of compromise over Nord Stream two, because, you know, the U S has been blocking that for a very long, trying to block that for a very long time under Trump, of course. 
Biden admitted that they, you know, recognized they couldn't do that anymore because they'd be basically cutting off energy to all of Europe. But now I'm wondering if they're trying to use this whole crisis in Ukraine to get a weaker Russian uh, stance when it comes to Nord Stream 2. Do you have thoughts on that, Dan? Well, like, the, like, like what they're Ar- Arlen, you go. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, like, yeah, it can be understated, I think, uh, about those gas royalties. Uh, I think a figure I heard was it's like 14% of the GDP of Ukraine are these gas royalties. Um, but I think, you know, even looking deeper, you have to look at the internal politics of, of Ukraine and the Zelensky government and how it's how essentially Ukraine is becoming like a failed state. Um, you know, they've shut down. Uh, all the opposition uh, TV stations, any any of the media outlets that uh, were primarily <laughs> Russian-speaking, um, yeah. they jailed, I believe, one of the opposition uh, members of the opposition. Which all this stuff you do not hear a word of. In, Never, uh, no. And in fact, if, Western, we do, if we do hear about it, if we do hear about it, it's the State Department applotting it, standing, yeah. you know, you know, yeah, which absolutely. is just so funny. I mean, yeah, just to so jump in for a second on this, like one of the ironic things about like our media here in Canada was uh, uh, our very own Justin Ling, ex-Vice magazine, uh, got in the ring like... By the way, who with, Dan loves to make fun of every I do. single day on Twitter. <laughs> I do. But uh, I mean, it, it, I'll stop when he stops. Uh, Fair enough. So he wrote, a, he wrote a piece for McLean's magazine, basically just cry-bullying Canadians into supporting, you know, uh, military intervention in Ukraine. And the only Ukrainian, he, the only Ukrainian voice in his piece is uh, former, former President Poroshenko, who he just kind of copied his, you know, like, like stenographized his speech from the Halifax Security Conference. And he's using Poroshenko in this speech as like the Ukrainian voice of reason. And it's hilarious because a week later, Zelensky uh, charged Poroshenko with treason that he fled. The <laughs> so, because Poroshenko's so got really rich, right? Isn't he a billionaire now? Yes, that's kind yes. of to Arlen's point about a dysfunctional uh, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. His, I think Poroshenko made his fortune. It's like a candy, like, 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 or whatever. That he was like the, the main candy uh, maker in Ukraine, something like that. But. Uh, yeah, I think you know Zelensky came in as this uh, as this figure that was going to um, throttle down the conflict uh, in in Ukraine, and and he's ended up flipping it now. Where I, I think because the more uh, power he kind of loses, um, and these uh, factions, uh, you know, I think with Ukraine too, it's so factually of all these oligarchs who essentially run the country, um, and all these political players are, are in and out of favor with different oligarchs. And, you know, Zelensky found himself, uh, you know, his poll ratings keep going down, so he ended up taking this hard line to the point, you know, where they passed the... Uh, I believe in, in Ukraine it's it's illegal to speak Russian. Um, yeah. A lot of Zelensky's, who, who is a, an actor, he's a comedian, his own films are illegal to screen in Ukraine, which is, yeah. I mean... I, I think that sums up the absurdity of, of the kind of domestic politics of Ukraine. Um, so I think with Russia, you know, they find themselves uh, in a position where they, they have a, they feel they have a duty to protect the Russian speaking ethnic Russian Russians in primarily East Ukraine from 
what are really like a, a faction of, of ultra nationalist, you know, these Galatian Eastern Ukrainians, um, you know, who worship Bandera, uh, you know, who, uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, this Azov battalion, uh, you know, basically like the truest neo-Nazis you're ever going to find on earth. Um, and so I think, you know, now there's this game of chicken where the West, for some reason, um, completely looks the other way uh, for all this internal Ukrainian politics and, and is trying to make it appear like it's this big geostrategic position. But really, it, it is just, you know, I think Russia had, you know, definitely had geostrategic interests taking Crimea and taking the, the port of uh, Sebastopol. Um, but, you know, for them, they really see like they're they're trying to avoid basically like like uh, uh, Yugoslavia 2.0. Yes. Because um, yeah. yeah. it seems, yeah. I mean, it seems yeah. very the apparent that, there. Like, yeah. like Ukraine to me, Ukraine, I, I don't think is going to survive as as an entire country. Like it, 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 I think it's going to either have to have what the Minsk is talking about, where you have autonomous regions um, or it's going to split into an East Ukraine and West Ukraine because. Yeah, you know that the 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 really hardcore ultra nationalists who are completely uh, like the fact that the the Canada and and you know NATO and and United States are fully behind these uh, these ultra nationalists, which is the most fucked up thing. Yeah, people still don't realize that like we are part. You know, the, there's that meme of like, are we the baddies? Well, it's the meme is literal. It's like we are supporting straight up neo-Nazi who neo-Nazis who want to ethnically cleanse Ukraine of, of ethnic Russian people. Uh, and the, US has, the U S has a habit of, of, of getting behind sectarian fanatics. I mean, same story in Syria. That's, that's mm-hmm. ultimately who like the, the U S ends yeah. up supporting because that's, that, that those are the forces that are willing to use violence to achieve their ends. Yeah. Usually let me reach you from, this is the most – I just can't believe this stuff gets published, but whatever. I shouldn't be surprised. This is John R. Dan. Uh, I was going to yeah. ask if you're going to read yeah. the Washington the, – the Wall Street Journal article. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Yes, yes, yes. So John R. Denny, and of course he works for uh, – he, he's not just at the U.S. Army War College. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And when you're a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, that's a euphemism for just straight warmonger, warmongering sadist who just gets off some kind of personal, deep personal gratification in causing misery and death for people around the world. So this this is what he writes in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Any Russo-Ukrainian war is likely to be bloody for the combatants, result in a wave of refugees heading west, and further destabilize an already precarious regional security situation. Nonetheless, as diplomatic efforts unfold, there are good strategic reasons for the West to stake out a hardline approach, giving little ground to Moscow over its demand to forsake Ukrainian membership in Western institutions. And by that, he means NATO. He doesn't say it, but that he means NATO and halt military activity in Central and Eastern Europe. Rather than helping Russian President Vladimir Putin back down from the position he's taken, the West ought to stand firm even if it means another Russian invasion of Ukraine, unquote. That's uh, John R. Denny in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, like what's significant is that this is not just some random wingnut. This is, I think, the prevailing view of so many people in Washington. It's the mentality that drove Russiagate for so long. I mean, Trump got impeached the first time, partly because he briefly paused 
Javelin missiles to and weapon sales to Ukraine. And then Adam Schiff is getting yeah. on the House floor and saying that we have to fight Russia over there if we don't fight them over here. I mean, this actually is a a prevalent view. There really are they really are um, willing to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. And I, it's like I, I wonder how, you know, how <laughs> how the Ukrainian public sees this, how basically these, these sadists, these psychos in Washington just basically see Ukrainians as bullet stoppers. That's, that's ultimately what they yeah. see them as. That's it. And well, I think- later on in that article, like it, it gets into uh, almost like self-parody territory where he starts talking about fucking stay behind networks. Right. You know, arming guerrillas, uh, setting up stay behind networks in parts of Ukraine that Russia might, you know, annex territorially. And it's they already did this. The Americans did this like the, the American intelligence did this post Second World War. And it was a massive failure. It, they got fucking rinsed. Uh, they abandoned the project. And basically, American intelligence services focused on the diaspora who had moved to Canada and had moved to the United States. These, like Arlen said, these sort of Galician, Bandera-worshipping uh, Western Ukrainians who were, in many cases, literal Nazis, right? So that's who they supported during the Cold War. And... Uh, that's what they want to do now. And there are so many awful parallels to, I believe that piece also reference. it's either that piece or CBC piece references Afghanistan. You know, it's just like, what happened next? What happened after we funded the Mujahideen, right? Like, well, and also when you look at, you know, I think for, you know, like Ukraine is this, you know, I believe it's the second poorest country in Europe. I think next to Moldova, like their economy has been terrible, uh, they're dealing with all sorts of like, I think Dan, you were saying, uh, Fred, yours had like, you know, they had no, no gas to, to yeah, run their his stove. His gas, like, his gas was shut off over Christmas. So he was posting pictures of, he was like a nice Christmas dinner. I made myself a few salads. You know? Where is he, Dan? And, and like, tagging. He's in, he's in, he's in Kiev. He's in Kiev. Wow. He's in Kiev. Yeah. Wow. He's tagging the national gas. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, the, the life is, it's really, it's really grim and you know i don't you know i don't know any you know ukrainians uh personally but you know i imagine if if you would talk to someone and be like do you really care about these geopolitical greater geopolitical struggles of of nato or do you care about you know being able to put food on your table and you know having an oven that has you know that has natural gas and having a warm house uh that's what they're going to be concerned about. And I think in the West, this, obse- this American obsession with, um, you know, these kind of, which is also weird too, because in America right now, it seems like foreign policy is completely schizophrenic. Like there is no, it, it really feels like there's no one at the wheel. So kind of whatever comes out of, uh, you know, Jen Psaki's mouth today could be 180 degrees different, you know, in a week. Um, so I think, with Ukraine, it, it is just, you know, the, the policy being developed are just uh, really these nut jobs like Victoria Newland carrying out what seems to be just a, a, a personal vendetta against Russia. Yeah. Uh, more, more than anyone it, 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 trying to improve the lives of, of Ukrainians. Like, oh, they don't care like about, the, I mean, they don't they care about the lives shit. of Ukrainians. All, like, all the money, all the Western money in Ukraine is going to weapons. It's it's going to reward yeah, absolutely. Western and manufacturers. And, and propping you know, up not, these... Yeah. 
and, and while I'm propping up these these you know these Banderites, who are these ideological um, cousins of of these this diaspora communities in like Canada, you know, this is like Christian Freelands yeah. people, you know, who have yes. who have these these um, you know these halls in Canada with. Uh, uh, you know, pictures of Bandera and uh, monuments <laughs> to to the SS in, in the cemetery. Like yeah. and that's that's yeah. who all this policy is for. It's and and, and yeah. why these these people are being propped up is is you know like you know Zelensky now is is his popularity is at like twenty seven percent. Like I I oh, think yeah. there's very little um, I think probably popular uh, interest in in having a war with Russia. Uh, it is just all. Kind of this this fantasy scenario created by the West um, for really these like psychopath neocons like Victoria Newland to carry out these obsessive uh, vendettas against yeah. Russia, and it's, it's really an intersection. Just how, how it's an intersection of interest. Yeah, it's just so how schizophrenic American foreign policy is right now. It's it's kind of terrifying that there is like literally no one at the wheel of American foreign policy. Um, it's kind of just going everywhere and, and nowhere at the same time. And it's being led by, you know, people who, who, in my opinion, you know, just really aren't that stable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Arlen, yeah. Arlen and I were talking about this. Uh, yeah. We were talking about this a few weeks ago, but like, you know, what, what's really dangerous is when you have this schizophrenic American foreign policy blob interfacing with a country that is as, um, absolutely unstable and fucked up as Ukraine. So, you know, part of, part of Zelensky's part of the way, one of the only ways he can hold on to power because everything is so devolved and it's been stripped of its assets um, is by empowering these paramilitary groups. This is one way the state can, uh, you know, uh, project force. But then the problem is these paramilitary groups have their own ideological purposes they're you're arming them and you need I mean, I'm sure, Aaron, you you've covered you've covered this for years with Syria. Like it becomes a game of like managing their uh, interests and almost like their emotions. And it's uh, yeah. it's a it's a it's a losing proposition, right? Like it's the exact same thing. It's it's you know, you're empowering sectarian fanatics who have their own agenda and you're trying to convince the public that it's all in the name of freedom. And protect and in the case of the U.S., like, you know, again, Adam Schiff's line, we fight Russia over there so we don't fight them over here. So, like, if we don't fight a proxy war with Russia in Russia's neighbor, Ukraine, Russia is going to invade the U.S. Like where? Like via, I don't know, Rhode Island or something like like Seattle. where are they going to come? Seattle. Like, Seattle. Seattle. Yeah, yeah. Vladivostok. Yeah. It's, it, it's and, you know, and, and that choice you talked about with, you know, that Ukrainians face that they want to have like a country or just be like a NATO vassal there to like serve NATO interests. It's the same choice that we face in the U S like I, I was just reading this article by Liz Theo Harris, who is one of the co-chairs of the poor people's campaign. You know, one of the, one, like one of the, like a group that's doing major grassroots action to try to get like a sensible budget that actually funds, you know, people rather than war. And they point out that there's, okay. So in the recently passed uh, Pentagon budget by Congress and uh, totally bipartisan, like only a small number of, uh, members of Congress voted against it. There's $75 billion in that bill, which passed for Lockheed Martin versus in the Build Back Better proposal, which of course is, you know, in limbo and might not even get passed at all. 
in Build Back Better, $40 billion for preschool and child care. So in the measure that passed, $75 billion for Lockheed Martin, in the measure that's probably not even going to pass, and if it does, it will get pared down, uh, just about half that, $40 billion for preschool and child care. And that's where, like, that's why just the, the abandonment of foreign policy among uh, so many progressives, like even in, in Congress, too, in the U.S., is not just, I think, immoral, but it's tactically, it's such a mistake because if, like, if people were willing to point out just how much money is wasted on, like, these criminal proxy wars, like in Ukraine or Syria, versus, you know, how much that is taken away from kids at home, I mean, that would be convincing to people. If you were to ask, like, U.S. citizens, just like if you were to ask a Ukrainian, like, would you rather have money going towards, like, war in Ukraine or towards childcare? I mean, I think across the spectrum, you have a lot of people favoring social programs but this, yeah. these but these questions are not are not asked because american hegemony is just it's even a, a, across the aisle that's presupposed to be something worth like defending mm-hmm. well it's, it's we almost a, like the like it's a legacy of obama in my yes. opinion and like the yeah. first kind of you know this this um twisting of the of promoting the liberal order which you know i think was really you know the war in libya um, what's kind of, I think, really the test case when they put it all together of just how do you shape the narrative where um, a military buildup and the use of, of military force is uh, the most important thing to protect people's human rights, um, as opposed to actually, you know, fulfilling people's, you know, material needs of, you know, shelter and food and education and stability. Um, and, you know, this idea that you can create all this instability in a region and somehow that that is creating the space where um, human rights is going to to sprout, which is just Flourish. completely insane. So, you know, to, to completely destroy the infrastructure of a country like the, the day to day, you know, governing infrastructure and then thinking that out of that vacuum somehow comes peace and prosperity is, it's just like, it's like a really weird, like twisted idea of what the United States was able to accomplish after the, you know, the second world war with the Marshall plan. Mm -hmm. And it's been twisted into, into this thing where, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, even with Canada, it's like, you know, this, you know, we're supposedly going to buy these F 35s. Someone just uh, (laughs) did the, um, the math on the the total lifetime costs of these fighters that it's going to be like 166 billion dollars and it's like okay so we're going to have what 70 of these fighters whose only job realistically is to aid the united states in carrying out whatever goofy idea they have this year of who's the enemy and and you know like they serve no real purpose um to better the lives of any canadian um, yes, they also can't take off if it's raining, and but, occasionally but the, just go off the well, edge of an aircraft carrier and sink to the bottom of the ocean. But it's, been, <laughs> it's, but it's all been framed in this way that that somehow this is this is the money that needs to be set, spent to to for human rights, for um, prosperity, for this and that. Where you know, and so it's it's kind of uh, like the entire anti-war movement has just disintegrated over the yeah. last. You know, yeah. ten years like it just well, doesn't exist. I, I gotta, yeah. I gotta say, one of the most—I de- mean, from the Canadian angle, one of the most depressing things I've read in the last year, uh, while I was doing uh, research for a, another episode we did on Ukraine and Bottleman, was I went through parliamentary records 
of uh, the approval of Operation Unifier, which made American news uh, because, oops, it turned out we were training neo-Nazis in Ukraine. But uh, uh, Operation Unifier was basically, is basically like our sort of blanket support for this new post-Maidan government. And um, if you go through the parliamentary records, what you'll see is you'll see our left-wing party, the NDP, the Green Party, uh, our centrist parties, the liberals, and the conservatives all trying to outdo each other with how many weapons and uh, how much money they want to flood into Ukraine. And one of the most upsetting things I read in there was an MP from Vancouver Island who spoke on the floor of the parliament and was talking about a play that she had been invited to see in Edmonton that was called, I shit you not, Blood of Our Soil. Oh. God. And it's a it's a play it's a play oh. about Ukra- Ukrainian identity, <laughs> and uh, she was waxing poetic about this play that she saw. And that was you oh. know she's like that's enough for me. I'm convinced we need to. But it was it's it was really chilling for me to uh, watch these people from ostensibly different parties uh, just try and outdo each other on on how much they wanted to arm uh, you know Ukrainian paramilitaries. And well, yeah, that's Canadian foreign policy in a nutshell to me. Well, listen, Dan. You, you were recently vindicated, and I, you know, and I saw you justifiably doing a little victory dance when it came out. In uh, I think it was the Ottawa Citizen that first reported it. I'll read the headline: Canadian officials who met with Ukrainian unit linked to neo Nazis feared exposure by news media. Documents, and I'll uh, I'll read the first sentence. Canadian officials who met with members of a Ukrainian battalion linked to neo-Nazis didn't denounce the unit, but were instead concerned the media would expose details of the get-together, according to newly released documents. This just recently came out in the Ottawa Citizen. And I so thought good. it was so it's, funny be- yeah, because it's like you, you've been warning about this for a long time that basically the people who Canada was supporting, the paramilitary forces in Ukraine, have a neo-Nazi component. And for doing that, I imagine you face a lot of ridicule. People, you know, people don't want to hear that. They don't think it's true. They, they, they think it's a conspiracy theory. But then it comes out in these documents that got obtained by the Ottawa Citizen that not only was the, the recognition of that inside the Canadian military, but that their only concern was that the public would find it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this, you know, it's not it's not just us training, uh, training these. Uh, th- you have to see this as a continuation of a fascist Ukrainian nationalist struggle that started before the Second World War and continued well afterwards and was supported by our government, by the American government. Uh, you know, we've, you've got Christia Freeland, uh, our finance minister, deputy PM, her grandfather ran one of the biggest, or was the editor, sorry, of one of the biggest Nazi newspapers in uh, occupied Galicia. You know, this is deeply embedded in our culture and something that like, no one wants to confront or talk about. So of course, when we go over there and we are training like uh, whatever they want to call civil defense forces, you know, uh, of course we are training Azov battalion guys. Of course we are training guys who worship Bandera, people who believe that all of Ukraine is Galician in some way, even though the country itself is for hundreds of years has been just like a multi-ethnic patchwork, right? And and was part of the Soviet Empire, so you had people moving from other corners of the empire, marrying. It's a lot. It's a lot like Balkans, I think, in a way. Um, but yeah, basically, it it didn't surprise me that we were training Nazis because they were posting shit on Facebook about <laughs> it for the last five years. Hey, hung out with the uh, fucking Canadian forces. 
uh, <laughs> and there and there's a vol- there's a volts angle in the background. You know, give me a break. That's that's crazy. All right, um, let's wrap. I, I the last comment I wanted to make was that I I hope one day when we get all the documents released, I I wonder just how much of a connection we'll be able to draw between things like Ukraine, you know, the proxy war in Ukraine, you know, Putin humiliating the U.S. by taking Crimea after the Maidan coup, and also the dirty war in Syria. How much these events fueled Russiagate? Because I often wonder, like, would we have gotten four years of obsessive Russia mania where Vladimir Putin and his army of social media bots were blamed for every single problem in the U.S., starting with Donald J. Trump? Uh, if not for the fact that the, the national security state in the U.S. has been humiliated by Russia uh, in in Ukraine when, you know, Putin intervened and, and took Crimea and uh, supported the uh, forces in Donbass and also in Syria, where basically Russia reversed the U.S. back dirty war that where it was empower, empowering Al Qaeda and other Salafi groups to overthrow Assad and Russia basically put a stop to that along with Iran and Hezbollah. And I wonder if Russiagate would have happened if not for that. I, I And hopefully one day, you know, I, I hope that the internal record will shine some light on that. But it's, but I like, regardless, I do think that, I mean, that's what Russiagate enrolled people in was this chauvinistic worldview where anything ascribed to Russia was evil and anything in support of uh, you know, dirty wars in Syria, proxy wars in Ukraine uh, was seen as noble and standing up to fascism. And any possible threat to that was seen as just, was just uh, like ascribed to Russian disinformation. That to me was like a major, at least goal of Russiagate was to normalize, you know, foreign policy areas like that, Ukraine and Syria, and to stigmatize any kind of criticism of those um, of those policies as Russian disinformation and then it's, it's very much ongoing yeah and i think i think a lot of people made careers out of it too you know it's not surprising to see how many uh you know let's say some some of them vice connected or like like sort of on the surface liberal journalists pivoted to being like quote unquote disinformation experts during that period i i think this is Oh, it was a cottage industry. It was, it was like, yeah. you know, it was booming. There's a lot of money in that for sure. I think, I think the vibe of Russia gate, if you could call it a vibe and it's a bad vibe, I think it's going to become a permanent fixture. And one of the things that lets me know that is I'm just going to read this uh, Buzzfeed headline to you guys. Uh, this is from December 21st. Taxi drivers, school teachers, and bankers meet the Ukrainian guerrilla army preparing to fight Russia by Christopher <laughs> Miller. Yes, of course, of course. Yes, so, yes, like, yes. here yeah. we have an exact yeah. article that we were all reading in 2015. You know, like, and yeah. we now know these people are fascists, right? But yeah. we're still going to read the article. So, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, this was uh, this was great, uh, Dan and Arlen. Thank you so much for sticking with us and uh, shifting. Like, I mean, we talked before about you know, like 360, whatever, like that evil plan was to like take over your musical your music catalog and all your earnings like we we flipped it um 180 to go from the music industry to ukraine but there there is like there is a common thread which is just like you know greed piracy yes. <laughs> you know kickbacks um yeah and, uh, Cor- you know, graft. The, the, the cra- yeah like the nato racket is not that really ultimately that different these days it looks like 
uh, with oh, very much so. racket. <laughs> so, like, you know, I keep trying to describe NATO as it's really like it's a defense contractor. Like, it, it's it's you know, that's what it's there for is for defense contractors. It's it's yes. like you you buy in. You know, it's why Switzerland is having to buy F-35s, and and you know, it, it's it's you gotta buy. You know, you gotta you gotta pay the vig to. You know, to the Amer- you know, to the United States by buying this, this you know, garbage military harbor- hardware, and it's like that's the price you pay. And if you're not, then you're on the outside of NATO, and then you're seen as a threat. You know, and and who knows what can happen to you when you're considered a threat to to the American Empire? Hey, hey, look, man, it would be a shame if something happened to your fledgling democracy. Yeah, hey, I, I like your uh, I like your Swift code there. It'd be shame if it uh if it uh you know went disappeared on you. You know. I, I am praying for a swift death to the the swift system in 2022. That's uh, you know, yes. that's that's one of my wishes. Well, I think I think that's the most insane thing about U.S. foreign policy is that it pushed China and Russia together, which I mean, 30 years ago that was like the nightmare of uh, like Brzezinski was that China yeah, and Russia yeah, exactly. would would form an alliance, but now they they have like this is the strongest uh, you know kind of. Uh, uh, diplomatic uh, relationship that they've had in, you know, ever. And yeah. this is because of, of America, and, uh, you know, how America's really lost the plot and they've lost the kind of uh, moral and um, ability to kind of lead, you know, the so-called free world um, because, you know, their policies are just completely schizophrenic. Uh, they, and they feel that the, they have the arrogance to, to make and break any deal they want and to change their mind on a, on a whim and, you know, like see with the JCPOA, um, you know, how, how can you deal with, uh, a, a, an empire led by a country where every four years you could have a complete sea change in your foreign policy? Like it just doesn't make any sense. Um, yep. Yep. so I think, you know, like Russia and China are seeing it as, as a means of survival and, and really it's, it's, you know the possibility when you look at the geography and the population and the the kind of geopolitical spheres of control. Um, this is the, the the biggest shift in geopolitics uh, since probably you know before the Second World War or even before World War One. Like this is this is massive. You know this is like the entire geopol- geopolitical world is going to look completely different in twenty years than than it did when you know in the nineties. Like it's it's a whole new whole new game and uh i don't think americans really understand that um or even you know or especially not in canada that that we are in a, a, a whole new field and the more that uh the west uh is belligerent and arrogant in how we carry out our foreign policy the more it's going to push um you know countries like china and russia to to completely disengage from from the west and i i don't necessarily think that's a good thing you know. Well, let's. I say let's find our version of Russia and China and any other countervailing force in in the music industry uh, yeah. in 2022. <laughs> That's my hope. Yeah. Chairman Bandcamp. Just... <laughs> yeah, Chairman Bandcamp. Oh my god. Exactly. All right. Well, listen, uh, Dan Bachner, Arlen Thompson of Wolf Parade. You guys will be touring in 2022, and I hope everyone checks you out. I certainly will be, and I can't wait to see you play live. And thank you so much for sticking around to. Uh, Talk to me about a topic that I think will be around for a very long time, which is this NATO, uh, the NATO death cult. Yeah, and, uh, NATO ain't going away. <laughs> no, no, it's not. More no. NATO, more problems. 
Marty, I'm about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, thank you, thank you guys, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Thank you, thanks, Ryan, and uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Hope you have a great rest of 2021, and I'll see you in 2022. All right, bye everybody. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy Happy New Year. Year.